Hello, and welcome to the AgTech So What podcast. Emerging technologies are rapidly changing the global agricultural industry, and we believe that this revolution is only getting started. But there's still too much hype out there and too big of a disconnect between ag and ag tech. So on this show, we try to bridge that gap. In each episode, we bring you the story of a different innovator in agriculture and try to find the place where ag and tech meet. I'm your host, Sarah Nolette. I'm joined today by Stuart Austin, general manager of the Wilmot Cattle Company, a regenerative farming operation with three properties in the New England area of New South Wales, Australia. I actually met Stuart at a pub for a work event, and within about five minutes, I knew I wanted to have him on as a guest. In this episode, Stuart shares how he and his wife, Trish, got involved in regenerative ag, how the stigma against regen ag is starting to change, and some of the tools that Stuart is using to make six and seven figure decisions around stocking rates and carrying capacity. Stuart starts by explaining how he and Trish ended up at Wilmot. I actually grew up around Albury in southern New South Wales. Trish grew up in central west Queensland, and we met in the Northern Territory 15 years ago. But in our separate ways, and then I ended up back up there. I was managing a property up there, and Trish was working for the Department of Ag for about 10 years. We'd sort of been working on stations and in the pastoral industry up there. And for the last couple of years, we were up there, we were just contracting. And we just started to look sort of beyond the NT for opportunities in sort of holistic management, I suppose. And Al had this job advertised and we didn't even know where Evil was. And just the way the, the ad was worded, uh, it sounded really encouraging, talking about low stress stock handling and holistic management and rotational grazing, all the things that we're interested in. So we applied quite out of the blue and by the time we flew down here and had a look around we couldn't wait to to get on board and thankfully we're off the job and we haven't looked back. (laughs) How did you get interested in in holistic management? My grandfather had a property and he was just a a, I suppose fairly conventional farmer doing what he I suppose what he knew and and what the you know acting on the advice he was given at the time which was typically fairly departmental so when I was about probably 22 or 23, I started to get in. So I suppose I went to a low-stress stock handling school. Through that, the people that were involved in that had been involved in holistic management through RCS in uh, from Rockhampton or Yupon, um, and talked a lot about the Grazing for Profit school. My brother-in-law and his family had been right through Grazing for Profit and Executive Link uh, and all the RCS teachings. And I started to spend a bit of time with them in North Queensland on their properties and I just really recognised how calm their business was, how low stress it was, their whole business, their family was very happy, they were quite financially secure. Um, it wasn't because they had the best place, you know, the best soil in the country or, or they'd inherited everything. They were just, they clearly had a very robust business financially um, and ecologically and so they became that family, I suppose, became real mentors to us. And through that, we started to expand our network in that circle. I'm really curious to, to know more about that. Was it a moment or an example of kind of that calmness and that success of that business? Like it sounds so appealing, but it's also hard to imagine. Like, I'm, is it like they walked around slower? Like the grass looked better, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, kind of in a way. Having worked, you know, quite a bit across the north, in a lot of places, it's a real numbers game. It's as hard and as fast as you can put them through. Um, it's a turnover business. And 
these guys, I went mastering there for them, contract mastering. Uh, I don't know what it would have been, probably 15 years ago after I'd been up north for a few years. And we went mastering. There's a helicopter there. They put some cattle together for us and cows were coming in calm, calves on the, you know, on them. Everyone was pretty relaxed. We just picked them up, a few dogs, you know, a few people and, and a fair size mob of cows and away we'd go and walk to the yards. Cutting cows and calves out was easy. Cattle were in a good frame of mind. People were in a good frame of mind. And I was there for, I don't know, I suppose probably a month or six weeks. And, you know, through that whole time we got a lot done, but there was no stress. It was, you know, we just, I don't know, everything, everything just seemed to roll along quite smoothly. It was after this experience that Stuart decided to learn more about holistic management, and he decided to take the grazing for profit course himself. So it's a foundation, I suppose, for anyone who's interested in this system of management. So we'd known about it for a long time, but we didn't want to do it until we were in a, posi- in a position to be able to implement what we'd learnt at the school, which was about the timing worked out pretty well. And we've, we've now, we're now part of an executive link board and we've hosted RCS kit days here um, and workshops and courses and so forth. And we're a real proponent for everything they teach because I've just seen so many examples of people who have undertaken their training and their agricultural businesses are, are financially robust. People are happy. There's some really good succession stories have come through those guys. Uh, and I just think, you know, to focus on some really key fundamentals about our businesses. It, it sounds like, um, I mean, my kind of personal journey was into ag through a largely kind of regenerative system and mindset and, and people who are doing that. So I, I feel like I'm fully bought in, but there's so yeah, much yeah. still controversy around it and holistic management, but regenerative especially, it feels like there's a bit of a tipping point where it's less kind of seen as hippy dippy, but it's still for a long time been seen as this like alternative hippy, non-commercial type of practice. Tell me about your experience with with either how things are changing or that kind of perception. Is that something that you you face? Absolutely. And, and if I go back to that family from North Queensland, they, you know, for a long time, they will tell you that the you know anyone who'd done RCS or grazing for profit were it was a cult and it was really weird shit that everyone was doing. And you know, it was very much you know people were outsiders. Us again, I guess. And in the last, I don't know how long, probably five years, I suppose, the tides really started to turn. And one of the things I say a lot is that one of the greatest catalysts for change is pain. And at the moment, there's a lot of pain in agricultural businesses, you know, by and large driven by the weather, something well and truly beyond our control. And I think we're seeing more and more examples of positive stories coming out of farm businesses or agricultural businesses that are managing regeneratively and... They're starting to prove that this isn't some weird cult or or kooky sort of uh, witchcraft. What we do is nothing revelationary. It's just simplifying things and going back to um, to some really old ways of, of being and doing uh, that focus on the fundamental things of making money and, and looking after our ecology and making sure people are happy. Now that Stuart has seen the benefits of these practices, he started to share them with others, and he's seeing that some of the negative perceptions are starting to change. And I think one of the most encouraging things we've seen, or I've personally seen, I suppose, we had a field day here in February this year, and we had nearly 300 people turn up. And it took a, took a while for that to sink in. There was a couple of people afterwards told me that was the best field day they'd ever been to. 
and it took a little while for me to sink in afterwards. And I've been to a lot of field days. I've never been to one on a farm with random people. And the whole premise of the day was around education and helping people with decision making and thinking differently and thinking about things the way we think about things here. Um, and we had examples through the day of other people who do things the way we do things. And in a non-confrontational way, not trying to jam it down anyone's throat, but but show that there is another way to a, a way of thinking and way of doing things that may mean that you're more profitable and that your land is healthier and that you are happier. Help me bring that to life in terms of one of the examples you might have used at, at the field day or something you guys do that's seen as quite different but but is effective. There's probably two things come to mind. One would be we talk about managing our stocking rate to our carrying capacity dynamically, so it's constantly changing and that's quite a barrier for a lot of people, particularly people who are traditionally uh, run a breeding enterprise where the last resort is to have to sell their breeding stock. At Wilmot, we run a trading enterprise. So to me, cattle are a, are a tool that we use to, number one, make money, and number two, heal the landscape. So I have no trouble in buying and selling cattle, and we do it all the time, you know, week to week, month to month. There's always cattle coming or going from here, as and when our grass determines we need to adjust our stocking rate. We also have a breeding enterprise at Walker on our property down there and that is a much harder decision for us to make but it's one that we know we have to make and we've gone from 800 cows there in uh, June last year to uh, about 250 left there now and we just, as our grass is determined, we just kept selling down cows and it is a harder decision to make but once you overcome that paradigm that they're irreplaceable and recognise that that your country will be grateful for you having made that decision and so will your bank account, it becomes easier to do. So that's one thing. The other thing probably that comes to mind that is quite different and takes a bit of coming to terms with, I guess, is small numbers of large mobs. So we run mobs of up to 1,500 head of cattle here, you know, 20-hectare paddock, and often they're moved, you know, this time of year we're moving almost daily. And some places are even more intensive than us are moving three or four or five times a day. That's quite a hard thing for a lot of people to fathom. Um, and it seems like a lot of work, but in fact, it's a lot less work. It's very enjoyable. And we fundamentally, the biggest thing that does for us is increase our density, which changes our, our landscape so much quicker. So, you know, we've got people in the district still ask us if we, you know, still run those big mobs and do all that other funny stuff. And I say, yep, we do. And, and also everyone always says we've got so much grass here. Why do, you, why do you have so much grass? You mustn't have enough cattle. Yeah, right. It's so interesting. I mean, the, the story you hear in the regenerative ag space is the Alan Savory classic, like look at this property and the fence and the other property and this one's been managed holistically and look how much greener and, and you know, nicer it is versus that one but it, you guys are actually living that and I mean I think you mentioned that with the fires that that's actually had maybe an adverse effect I don't know if you want to if you want to tell that story but it, it always brings it to life when you know it's not a picture but it's it's someone living it and you actually go see that farm next to the other one and can really see how how different it truly is yeah for sure and we do see that every day and, and um the first thing that comes to mind is I wish I could help that person on the other side of the fence. And one of the one of the things I've always said is that one of the biggest barriers to change is the human ego. And you know, it's why we why we do what we do here in terms of the workshops and the courses and the field days is to try and open the door and show people what we do and why we do it. And perhaps this might help them. 
so we see that fence line effect every day and, and we don't think we're better than anyone else. We just, I suppose, we like to think that our land is a bit healthier. Definitely one of the uh, flip sides to that was in early September when we had a bushfire come through here and we had more grass than most of our neighbours and meant we lost a lot of country and, and grass that we had stockpiled, I suppose, for uh, for a few months and, and um, we had plenty of feed in front of us and that was taken away in a matter of hours. And the fire then burned out as it went into our neighbours um, where there wasn't grass to burn. So that was a bit of an irony and quite heartbreaking. And certainly there were some tough decisions to make then and around our stocking rate and our carrying capacity because we basically just had the number of amount of grass we had halved. So we needed to halve our stocking rate overnight, which is effectively what we did the next week. Um, again, not an easy decision to make, but one we knew we had to make. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Do you to tell me a bit about the Wilmot kind of brand? Do you how does that work? Are you guys? We talked a little bit about this before, but are you direct to consumer? Is it branded as grass fed? Like, how does the downstream supply chain work? And I guess one of the reasons I ask is often it's there's a balance between doing regenerative practices because that's what will be more profitable and keep the family and team sane versus it's some it unlocks some premium for consumers. So yeah, tell me a little bit about how downstream works for you guys and how you think about you know regenerative in, in terms of premiums and consumers sure we uh so we don't have our own brand presently um we have had in the past and we've learned a lot of things around that it was actually just before i got here it was somewhat small scale and being marketed domestically and the scale became the issue that we we needed more scale so we increased that and learned a few more lessons uh, we then did a lot of due diligence sort of last year around i guess a full-scale supply chain is the u.s uh, marketing a, a grass-fed beef product and in the end decided that the capital required and that the risks associated were really a bit too too large for what we were comfortable with at this stage we absolutely would like to you know that's our i guess our long-term goal uh, or vision is to, to be rewarded for the land management that we undertake through the beef that we sell, I guess. Um, but I think it's still a little way off. Uh, there are some people who are doing it really well, but it is also a very small portion of their business. And even when we were, you know, there was 12 months where we were supplying quite a significant volume monthly, and um, even then it was probably only 10% of our turnover. So it's a it sort of finishes the story, I guess, for us, and that's what that's the reason why we're it's still at the bottom of our heart as something we'd like to do in the long term. In that everything we do is geared around the health of our soil, the health of our ecosystem, the health of our animals, the health of our people, and our bank account. And so being able to put out put that story on a box and say that that this is the healthiest beef you can buy um, because of the life it's had. That's ultimately the story we'd like to tell, but there are absolutely some production challenges associated with that and, um, you know, with a typical market environment where a consumer wants that product month in, month out in such a variable climate that we live in that's proving quite challenging to, to meet. Mm, yeah. and, and, you know, it's been a demise, I'd say, probably 95% of the brands that have failed have been, you know, uh, inability to supply in tough times. So it's something we haven't yet overcome, but perhaps one day we will. 
Yeah. Do you ever um, get into <laughs> like local debates or, or maybe not local around um, grass fed beef and holistically managed livestock versus plant-based protein versus cellular agriculture? Like that, that beef is the evil, you know, environmental degrading force and we can't produce cows, but no, I'm doing it healthy. Like, do you ever find yourself in the middle of that debate or any, any examples of, of having to kind of defend beef in that sense? I think I'm mellowing with age. Um, I am quite active on social media, mostly on Facebook, and have been known to engage in some fairly heated conversations on there, but always try to be respectful and, and look at both sides of the story. Um, I haven't been so much of late, but certainly have learned a lot about both sides of the story. And, and one of the interesting things I really found about plant-based meat is that 95% of the people that are eating plant-based meats are in fact uh, meatitarians, not vegetarians, and they are discontented with the production system, the, the you know conventional production system of their beef, and they're looking for it's sort of I guess a silent protest in terms of they still want to eat beef and they still love the taste and the smell and, of everything and everything that goes with it, uh, but they don't agree with the supply chain, and that's something that we need to get better at doing and telling i think yeah it's such a, it's such a challenge right? uh, in marketing yep. now so um uh, similar all the time like everything looks like it's natural and and healthy and good for you and like non-gmo and all these terms that don't mean anything and aren't regulated it's it's like it's just so hard to tell a story that's authentic when especially decisions are made in in one second by someone who's busy and and thinking about price mostly for sure. And it's such a, I mean, I don't know how we overcome that. I guess uh, someone asked me that the other day, how do we, you know, how do we educate the masses about what we do? And I just said, you've got to open the gate. Basically, you've got to invite, we invite them in here, you know, our front gates open all the time to come and see how we produce our beef and what we do and how we do it. Uh, and show them that the way we produce our beef is good for the environment. We are sequestering carbon and we're actually about to do a carbon audit here and, and are quite confident that we are carbon negative in our production system. But how do we get that message all the way to the consumer in Sydney? Uh, from Little Old Ebor is a challenge and uh, we can preach that what we do is the best thing, uh, but if we can't supply a product every day of the week on the shelf in the supermarket, then it's still not good enough. Tell me about the carbon audit. Like, why did you decide to do that? Um, and especially, like, on the technology side, often one of the big challenges with that kind of thing is the just how cost-effective it largely isn't to do that kind of work. So how are you thinking about that process? So we have been, uh, I guess it started with our soil testing. And since 2012, we've been soil testing here, about nine different sites across the farm. And we do it in about May every year. And each year we look at all, you know, all our macro and micro minerals across our soil. And one of the things we focus a lot on is carbon. And we have seen at shovel depth, on those same transects over the last seven years, uh, an increase in soil carbon from a base of about 2.3% to a peak in 2017 of uh, nearly over 5%. And we're sort of back hovering around 45 4.7% soil organic carbon, which is a dramatic increase. And one of the, you know, one of the biggest things that's done that has been the intensity of our grazing and, and that was the, the real thing that changed that, that source increase in soil organic carbon. So we've done all kinds of sums around that and we've uh, shared this information fairly widely around the world with some different organisations trying to look at ways that we can be rewarded for that 
in terms of the whole emissions reduction scheme, carbon farming, all these different things that are talked about, uh, but no one has quite cracked, and neither have we. So carbon audit the other day talking about whether we could sell a, a carbon negative beef product um, came up and, and we have had an audit done here a few years ago. Uh, and I can't remember exactly, we may have been slightly carbon positive at that point, but we're now fairly confident that we'd be carbon negative. So can we then develop a brand and, and write a story around that? Whether or not we'll be monetised for that is still remains to be seen. We work with a consulting company in Armadale and we've got a guy there who's, you know, leaving no stone unturned trying to find ways that we can be remunerated for what we're doing here. Nevertheless, it's something that we continue to focus on every day in our system and our long-term goal is to try and get our soil carbon back to about 6%, which from a CIRO report from 1960, that's about where we were. So hopefully uh, one day we can be, we can monetise those gains. One of the ways that Stuart has been able to implement some of these regen practices is through the use of technology. Not only do they use tech, but they've actually been involved in the development of some tech solutions when they couldn't find anything available on the market. We like to think of ourselves as fairly um, technically technically advanced, I suppose, and, a, and an early adopter of new technology. And we use it fundamentally to make decisions, uh, capturing data and then making decisions from that data. So uh, my grazing was developed four or five years ago on the back of Wilmot, basically. we The manager who was here prior to me, he was the one that started the rotational grazing and, and increasing the intensity here, was using paper grazing charts. And what he was achieving was clearly evident in the paddock and talked a lot about grazing charts, but, you know, upper management couldn't see that. So uh, Bart Davidson, who's all in all his wisdom, said he'd always had a dream about making that an online system, and a, you know, for planning and forecasting and recording, etc. So my began, and Wilmot was has was and still is the guinea pig for Maya, and we use it every day in, in our management here, basically to uh, graze plan. So we're, we're constantly out in the paddock feed budgeting, looking ahead of ourselves and seeing how much we're in volume, I suppose, how much we're grazing in each graze and, and how much we've got in front of us to be able to graze, how many days grazing in, in front of we have. Um, we're coming back and plugging that into a grazing plan and then, we're, then we can extend that out into a three and six and 12-month forecast and then we can start to make decisions around our stocking rate, which then influences our turnover, which influences our bottom line. So when I go to write a budget every year, the first thing I do is go out in the paddock and take stock of our grass inventory and then I start to forecast in my what I think our rainfall will be and how many cattle I think we can can uh, graze through each month of the year and I then put the, start plugging that back into the budget as to how many cattle we need to buy and how many we need to sell and then that ultimately determines what our bottom line is going to look like for the year. But we're constantly re-budgeting, I suppose, or re-forecasting, you know, every month that changes as, as our rainfall, whether we get more or less than what we'd forecast, we're then adjusting that forecast stocking rate. So it's a very powerful tool. I say that I make $100,000 decisions with it probably weekly, if not million-dollar decisions with it. So the cost of it is, it's you know, it's incidental really. We don't, I don't even notice it coming out of the bank account. Uh, for the value of the decisions that we make with it. 
what was it like to be the like pilot slash, you know, part of the development? Like that can be things in ag tech that's often talked about is like, oh, like I want to be the fast follower so that I don't have to go through the pain of having it sort of work for a while. Like I just want it to work. What was that like? Yep. Uh, it was good fun and we still have fun with it. One of the things I really enjoy is business development. And while this isn't necessarily business development, we were certainly involved in product development. So we road tested a lot of things, but it also gave us an opportunity to give a lot of feedback, constructive feedback to say, you know, this is working really well for us. This is something we think you need to change. This is one of our frustrations. I had Bart on speed dial there for a while in terms of um, support issues, and but I think one of their greatest strengths is their support team. Trish, in fact, before she went on maternity leave, was their support team leader, and there's a four or five girls now on the support team and all of them use the product at home. I think that's really valuable to Maya in that when people ring up with issues, the people like me who are graziers and we just want it to work and uh, the girls all understand our frustrations, I suppose, and they're, but they're very proactive in, in fixing things and, and creating a program that's really user-friendly for people like us. So it's been really good fun and, and it's exciting. Um, we actually have the whole Maya crew come up here each year and they have a little corporate love-in up here and that's a great opportunity for us to get them in the paddock and show them how we use it in the paddock and how it's working or not working for us and, again, give them some constructive feedback as to how, how we think it could work better. So, yeah, I would say it's been good fun. Yeah, right. So when the next tech product comes knocking saying, hey, do you want to be a pilot user slash help me co-develop this, are you going to say yes? For sure. We're always looking for uh, for things that we can integrate into the system here. I believe Stuart when he says that he'll say yes. He has a lot of examples of different tech that he's using, trialing, or helping to develop. We've also sort of had a guinea pig, or I suppose, with a pilot for FarmBot and Myers integration. We've now got a rain gauge, a FarmBot rain gauge here that is pushing information straight into Maya our rainfall information straight into Maya. Um, so that's terrific. Stuart also has a bit of a wish list for some ag tech that he wants but hasn't found. And the one that I really want that I've been asking, you know, in a few different places for is a, a soil probe under a rain gauge so that I can we can start to look pretty closely at our infiltration levels of every every time we get rain, how much are we infiltrating uh, versus how much is running off and also how much are we... Are we retaining you know in our soil and for how long because if our soil health is improving as we think it is and uh, as a soil test is suggesting we should be our, our water retention should improve and our infiltration should improve but the only way to really test that is is how much rain do we get versus how much do we retain and, and the soil probe is what i need to be able to do that so if there's anyone who's got a uh, thinks they have a product that could do that i'm very keen to hear about it Hmm, great. We'll get the get the word out. <laughs> try, try, try to send someone your way. One thing that struck me during my conversation with Stuart, like many of the producers who come on the podcast, was that he's so open about what they do and how they do it. Given transparency is such a buzzword in agriculture right now, and consumer mistrust feels like it's at an all-time high, I wanted to ask Stuart, why is he so open? We're just quite open about sharing our story. We don't profess to know it all or have all the answers, but we're all keen to help other people, um, and that comes right from Al, who owns the place, um, 
And it's the reason that we hosted at Field Dome and it's on again in 2020, 27th of February at Wilmot. And we've got a cracking lineup of speakers. And again, the day won't necessarily be about Wilmot, but it'll be about bringing people to, to the farm to share their knowledge to help other people because uh, we're all in this together. And, and plenty of my friends are in just as much pain as anyone else. Um, and uh, if I could help anyone, I'd love to be able to help them. So, you know, if, uh, like I say, if anyone's got any questions about anything we do, we're, we're always willing to, to share. I guess there, there's pretty different views on this openness question. And, and I find it fascinating that some people are like, I'm oversimplifying, but on one side of the spectrum, it's um, just trust us where we care about the land and the animals, let us do what we do best and get on with being a consumer. And on the other end, it's like, come have a look anytime, learn more, like ask us questions, we're super open, which I find so fascinating. Like there's such different answers in, in the same industry and, and even some people doing the same kinds of practices. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but it, it always strikes me as um, both... Yeah, just just such a, di- a stark difference in the in the industry. Yes, uh, that is a really good question, Sarah. And I, I sort of struggle to to think of it from the other perspective of just trust us, because I guess if I if, if that was someone telling that to me, um, I'd be asking what they've got to hide. What are you What are you scared of us seeing? What are you worried about? And if we wholeheartedly, you know, put a hand in our heart and say that we're doing the very best we can by animals and our land, then we should be willing to open the door, because without a customer, we don't have a we don't have a market. Without a market, we might as well not be producing the product that we're producing. So, like any business, our customer is always right. To close out my chat with Stuart, I wanted to try something new. I attempted to ask him a couple of rapid fire questions. So first one, do your kids want to be involved in, in farming? Uh, yes, Harry's nearly five and um, I can rarely leave the house without him wanting to come. I love it. Very cool. What's your most proud farm moment? It could be from this year or in your past. Oh, uh, that's a big question. I'd say the field, lot, the feed, field day would take some topping. Um, yeah, that was that was quite a special day, I guess. And like I say, it took a few months to sort of come to terms with the fact that that many people had turned up to um, to come and see and hear what we had to say. Uh, another little highlight this year was a was being a, uh, awarded the Young Carbon Farmer of the Year Award in Aubrey in August. Um, it was completely unexpected and quite kind recognition of um, what we've been trying to do here. Is there a book? Uh, or movie that's been influential in your in your life that others should check out. There was a book actually. I read this a long time ago, but it had a profound impact on my life. It was called uh, You Inc., written by John McGrath, who from McGrath Real Estates, and I read it. I don't know, sixteen years ago, and that book certainly changed my life in terms of my attitude and outlook to life, and and probably my personality. And a movie that I have watched, well, again, when I was younger, uh, this would be a bit of a throwback, but remember The Titans was a um, was a fairly influential movie. There's a little sign on the wall in that movie that says, um, attitude reflects leadership. And I've never forgotten that. Uh, there's a lot of hidden messages in that movie that are, that are worth trying to take home. 
That's really awesome. Thank you so much for making the time. This was a good chat for sure. I enjoyed it. For sure, Sarah. That's great. Thank you very much for having me on, me, uh, on the uh, podcast. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Ag Tech So What? You can stay up to date with the latest episodes and news at agtechsowhat.com. And as always, if you have any feedback or other guests to recommend, we'd love to hear from you. Just hop on the website and leave us a comment or send us a message. Finally, if you like what you're hearing, and we hope you do, please share the podcast with a friend or leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. Catch you next time.